we, we were talking about objections to the doctrine of election and predestination. Um, I've argued that, that God is sovereign ultimately over the salvation of, of who is, who ultimately will turn to Him. We've been dealing with objections to, um, to this doctrine. There aren't, there are not a few. In fact, most of the objections that I encounter are not fundamentally biblical objections, but philosophical objections. And philosophical objections are valid objections. They're just not nearly as potent or as strong as biblical objections. Um, so we've covered... Okay, I'll, wait, oh, I'll, I'll give it 30 more seconds until we get done handing things out. We've covered the objection that this means fatalism, that we're just all robots, that we're all puppets. Um, and and um, we've said, no, what we're arguing is somehow... And it's a mystery, fair enough. God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including the salvation of, of his people. And we are making real, meaningful, and uncoerced decisions. Um, we really are choosing things. We really are doing things. And so it's not that we believe in fatalism. It's that somehow God, is, God works these two things together so that, if you want to put it as simple as point, God sovereignly works it so that we will choose what he plans freely, that we will freely choose what he plans. And if that sounds like, yeah, there's a mystery there. Fair enough. It's just the way the scripture points at it. So to argue that, as I hear frequently, oh, you believe we're all robots or puppets, that's simply not what, what we're arguing, not what we think the Bible teaches. It's what Alyssa said is a straw man. You guys ever heard the term a straw man argument? Anyone? It's basically when you misrepresent your opponent's view and then beat it up because it's much easier to mis beat up a weakened, misrepresented view than it is to take on the real thing. Um, okay. Then we talked about election is unfair. And we went to um, Matthew 20 and the story of the, the landowner who pays the workers different amounts. And Jesus says, look, the landowner has the right, if he wants to be extra gracious to some, to be extra gracious to some. The reality is everyone's invited. No one gets turned away. No one will be actively stopped by God. God is not hindering people coming to Christ. Um, and so fair, as um, Byron Kern says, you know, you want, you want grand sometime in August or September. That's what the fair is. Okay. But, um, cha. A drum and a, drum and a cymbal fall down a mountain. Okay. Um, this isn't about fair. This is about grace. And grace can't be debted. Grace cannot be owed. Grace cannot be obligated, or it ceases to be grace. That's Paul's big distinction. It, it, go, turn real fast. <clears throat> I just want to make this point. Turn real fast to Romans 4. And this is where... Um, Sometimes this is where a little clarity can come in in, in looking at the Greek. Um, in verse 4. And Paul's contrasting works salvation, where you do stuff and you get saved, you, you earn merit and you buy your way into heaven, so to speak, versus faith and grace. And he says this in verse 4. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, and then the ESV says, but as his due. But literally, the one who works, his wages are according to debt. They're according to debt. The relationship of working is 
your, your employer is indebted to you. He owes you your money. You can take him to court if he doesn't pay you. You may thank your employer when you get paid, but technically he hasn't given any grace to you in paying you. He's fulfilled an obligation. It's debt. The way working, what work corresponds to is debt. Working incurs indebtedness on some party. You get that? Okay? And so that's where words like obligation and ought come in. Now turn to Romans 9, 5. Or 10, no, 10, 5. Or no, 11, 5. Wow. I wrote it in my Bible and I wrote it wrong. I wrote it in my Bible wrong. I'm sorry. Now look at this. So if the fundamental concept, the fundamental principle of works is obligation, indebtedness. Look at what he says in 11.5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So get this. Grace and works are mutually exclusive concepts, right? That's what Paul is saying here. You can't have it both ways. You can't have salvation by grace and salvation by works. The second you introduce works, he says grace would no longer be grace. And if the fundamental notion of works is debt or owed, being owed, then what you can't do is mix owing and grace. And what that means is you cannot ever owe someone grace. Because owe doesn't owing, debt doesn't correspond to grace. What does it correspond to? Works. Right? You get, I'm putting this together. Paul says, when you get paid, your pay isn't according to grace, but according to debt. When you work, literally, that's what he's kata erga. Anyway, when you get paid, you get paid according to debt, not according to grace. That's Your paycheck isn't a grace. Your paycheck is a debt paid. Right? You with me? Everyone? You're bought. Does your employer need to pay you? Yes. Okay, okay. There we go. He is obligated to pay you. It is a debt. He's indebted to you while you have worked and he hasn't remunerated you for that. Paul says, so the fundamental relationship of debt is with great, is with works, works and debt, working and someone owing somebody something. And then he says, grace and works are mutually exclusive concepts, which then means if grace and works can't coexist and what works is all about is debt, guess what? You can never owe grace. Owing is the language of works. So we've got to catch ourselves because we'll be very tempted to say, but shouldn't God give everyone the same chance? So what you're saying is God is obligated, God ought to be gracious. Nope, that's a category error. If Whatever it is you ought to do, it can't be grace. You can never be obligated to give grace. If it's an obligation, definitionally it stops being grace. That's what I'm trying to make the point. Grace cannot be owed. Work debts can be owed. Work can be owed. Grace cannot be. The second is an obligation. Its base grace poof disappears. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 11:5. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
So we can't say God is obligated to be gracious. So this whole argument of fairness flies out the window, and Jesus gives parables like this. The parable of the of the, the guy who hires the workers, and he goes out in the first hour, and they work all day, and he hires them. Eventually, there's guys who worked one hour, and they get a full day's wage. What's this guy doing? He's being super gracious to some of his employees and not super gracious to others. Some of the workers get exactly what they're owed, and some of them get way more than they're owed. And when the guys who get exactly what they're owed grumble, his whole point is, I've done you no wrong. It's my money. If I choose to be gracious to these people, what is it to you? And so we're going to argue, you're telling me God gave extra grace to some people? He gave extra opportunities? Of course he did. Has anyone here seen the risen Lord on the road to Emmaus like Paul? Of course Paul got afforded more opportunities than we did. Obviously. The resurrected Jesus Christ personally appeared to the Apostle Paul. That is not a grace extended to most people. God does not treat everyone the same. He treats everyone with justice, and he is good to everyone, and he is gracious to everyone, but he does not, and nor does he ever claim to, to, to have this sort of, um, well, I did this for you, so i got to do this for you. I did this for you, so i got to do this for you. No. He comes out to Moses, and he says in Exodus 34, I'm God, and I mercy whom I mercy. Right out of the gate. Hi, I'm God, and I do what I want. And if I want to be gracious to somebody, I'm gracious to him. That's it. Any questions on that? This is more of a recap of what we've covered so far and objections to the doctrine of election and predestination. Any questions before we move into the third, which is actually a biblical argument? The first two have really just been philosophical arguments. Yes, Alyssa. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. We, yeah, no, exactly. I think that what it really boils down to is we don't really grasp the wickedness of our sin. The reason why I say that is because I think we don't really, we have such a, and I get it, we, hell is a terrible and terrifying concept. And to think that God would cast someone into hell we never heard the gospel, um, is, is something we wrestle with, and we try to find ways around it, and then we come up with these like theologies. Well, well, God knows whether they would or would not have believed if he had sent the gospel, or he might give people, I hear people say stuff like this, or the wider mercies of God, um, or all these other things, well-meaning Muslims, well-meaning people in other countries. And Paul gives us the answer in Romans 1. The answer in Romans 1, 2, and 3 is that... Um, Everybody knows a fair amount of God, about God from conscience and from creation and from, as, as Carol um, was saying this morning, the, the sermon that's around you 24-7, um, declaration, preaching. You're, you're subject to the preaching of the glory of God everywhere you go, every second of your life. And men universally suppress and hold that down. And if, if, I don't believe this happens, but if somebody were to say, no, actually, I do want to know this creator God. No, I do want to get right with him. No, I really do. Then I am fully convinced God would bring them the gospel message. The reason why I say that is because I don't think people ever do that apart from the spirit working on their heart. And if God is sending his spirit to work on someone's heart, he will, the, the gospel will follow. 
you know, he's not going to sort of save somebody. He's going to save people. So if anyone, anyone on this planet truly is no longer suppressing the truth and the righteousness, is really coming to grips with their conscience and their sin and this creator God that they want to know, I'm absolutely convinced such a person will receive the gospel. The gospel will get to them. Um, the reason I'm absolutely convinced of that is I don't believe anyone's going to do that apart from the Spirit working on their hearts. And God's not going to send the Spirit without sending the word of the Spirit, the gospel of truth. And so that that's... That's the, okay. Yes. Questions, thoughts. Okay. Objection. Yes. No. Who, who? Yes, Elsa. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. No. We are terrified. Yeah. One of one of the things we are terrified of, especially um, in the West and especially in the Midwest, is anyone accusing us of showing favoritism, right? The most extreme example I've heard, i got a friend of mine, who their family, if if they give any sort of financial help to any of their grown children, they will immediately cut a check for that amount to anyone else in their family. And so they'll, no, they will randomly get checks for like twenty-seven thirty, because we filled up Tommy's truck the other day. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I would submit to you that such a conviction would be a form of slavery. It's crazy. Um, um, but I had... I, it's, no, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. When I, we, we were just... Serena and I were kind of like, whoa, really? Wow. Um, and no, and God God does... He mercies whom he mercies. He, 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 he mercies whom he mercies. He picked the Jews... He didn't pick the Canaanites. He picked Jacob. He didn't pick Esau. And right out of the gate, God's picking one descendant over the other. He's choosing to bless and make promises and covenants with this one child and not the other. Now, nobody gets injustice. Nobody gets a wrong done to them. Some people get inexplicable inexplicable grace given to them. The blessings given to Jacob that Esau sold away for a bowl of porridge are invaluable. Graces. Yes. Grace is unmerited favor. Free, unmerited favor. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So th- mercy is, is the unmerited, um, undeserved shielding from punishment. Grace is free giving something you don't, good that you don't deserve. Like God promising Abraham that I'll make your children and descendants as much as the stars. Well, well, I would, yeah, I would say that basically unmerited, undeserved, free, volunteer favor and, and blessing. And then it can come in the forms of mercy, which is primarily the shielding of wrath and, and things like that. But yeah. Yeah, forgiveness is a grace. Forgiveness um, is technically... Judicial. God doesn't forgive until sin is dealt with. God never forgives the guilty. Exodus. Let's go to Exodus 34. We've been dancing around it. Let's go to Exodus 34. Why not? In some senses, JP, I'm just thinking this out loud right now, so this is always dangerous. In some senses, God's forgiveness is not a mercy. It's just. Yes, Exodus 34. In some senses, God's forgiveness is not a grace because he only forgives those who are justified. He never forgives the guilty. It's only after Christ's 
Death has been applied to us and he forgives us. In which case, he must forgive us because our debt has been paid. Right. Well, I think there it's the whole picture of God put into motions a plan that would enable him to forgive us. In that sense, God's forgiveness is a grace, absolutely. So when you step back and like, God sent his son to die on a cross so that he could forgive us and be reconciled to us, that's all grace. The actual moment of forgiveness, he's responding to us receiving Christ's imputed righteousness, in which case the forgiveness is just. Um, okay. Yes, that's interesting. Obligated or... Hmm, that's an interesting point. Yeah, no, that's 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 how I yeah, absolutely. God's saying, I intend that the grace that I've given you you pass on. And so in some sense you are you are obligated to pass on my grace. The source of that grace is free. God is the only free person. Let me let me show what I mean. Exodus actually thirty three and thirty four. Thirty three. Um Moses has just interceded for the people of Israel, and God, and he, and he cries out, show me your glory. Okay? So verse 18, Moses said, show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name before you, Yahweh. And I'll be gracious to him, I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy to whom I show mercy. So right out of the gate, God's like, you want to know who I am, Moses? You want because God's glory is His person. God's glory isn't like this effervescent glow. You know, there is effervescent glow, which is indicative of glory. But God's glory is who He is. It's the excellencies of who He is. God's glory isn't like a coat that He puts on. It's Him. And so, one of the ways God reveals His glory is He tells Moses who He is. And here's the first thing He says: You want to know my glory? I mercy whom I mercy. That's my glory, my freedom. And my grace is my glory. And then he gives him a bit fuller definition in chapter 34, verse 6. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he covers him, and he walks by, and he proclaims his name. Verse 6, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, we know how that dilemma gets solved, but I suggest to you that when Moses heard that, he probably just put his hand over his mouth and said, whoa. He says, I'm going to tell you my glory. I'm going to proclaim my name of the Lord, and I, I'm full of steadfast love and mercy and forgiveness, and I forgive sins, and, and I'm just faithful, and I don't pardon the guilty. So take that. And I think Moses probably just said, whoa. Now we know how that plays out. How is, as Paul said, God is just and justifier. God forgives people only after their sins have been paid, which is why I was saying that that forgiveness in some sense technically is owed. But, but that, that's, 
let's, let's not forget that for over a thousand years, that tension just hangs. Hi, I'm God. I am full of steadfast love. I'm full of mercy. I'm full of forgiveness. And I don't let guilty people go free. Well, the sacrificial system helps bring that in to some degree. I'll forgive you only after your sin's dealt with, so you've got to kill this animal. Because I don't let guilty people go free. Um, so, okay. Now, on to number three. Any questions on that, or are we good? Okay, number three. This is at least the first biblical argument. This is good. Yay. It's a biblical argument. We should always be happy when people make biblical arguments, even when they're arguments that were wrong. Because we're going to go to the Bible, and God's not the author of confusion, and we're going to read the Bible, and we're going to come closer to one mind. Amen. And the argument is this. But Jeremy, God declares he wants all people saved. And you're saying that he has chosen to save some. The Bible says he wants all to be saved. So there seems to be a conflict here between what you're saying the Bible says and what, say, 1 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 3 actually teach. Um, you guys, if, okay, let's go to 1 Timothy 2. And there's two ways to answer this question, this problem. Um, I recognize on the surface it appears to be a difficulty. I think there's two, two ways of handling this. First, I'm not entirely sure the text does say that God desires every single last person to be saved. I, I do actually believe that's true. Um, I don't believe these two passages actually say that, but let's take a look at it. Um, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. This is good and pleasing. This is where he's talking about prayers for all people. Let's go back to actually 1 Timothy 2, read it in verse, verse 1. First of all, I urge the supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceable, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And there it is. God desires all to be saved. But of course, the word all only applies to a set, right? And the set can be every, the set of all people, or it can be the set of, you know, are all the disciples here? Or is everyone here? They just mean the 12 people. When we get ready on Sunday morning, hey, is everyone here? We're not asking if Christians from Pakistan are here. We're asking if Martin's Community Church is here. To me, the context suggests, notice how the word all people appears in verse 1. And the word all people occurs in verse 3. One of the rules of biblical interpretation is when the same word, same phrase is used in the same context, it very likely means the same thing. So all people, I think in verse 1, clearly means all types of people, all classes of people. I want prayers and supplications and intercessions and thanksgivings to be made for all people. Now, if he really means everybody, our prayer meeting's not getting done. Because people are getting born that we got to start praying for. Rather, he goes on to clarify, for kings, we're all in high positions. They may lead a peaceful and quiet and godly life. Hey, I want you to pray for all types of people. Don't, don't forget your president. Don't forget your, your senators. Don't forget. I want you to pray for everybody, not just Jews, everybody. And then he goes, and the reason, because notice the statement of God desiring all people to be saved, is the reason why such prayers should be made. Why should I pray for all types of people? Because God wants all types of people to be saved. 
the reason the all people in verse 1 and the all people in verse 3, verse 3 is brought in to support why we should be praying for all people. The reason we should be praying for all people and for kings and for rulers is because God wants all people to be saved. So I, I think it's very likely to pray for all types of people because God wants all types of people saved is all this is saying. But even if you don't, even if you don't necessarily buy that, I, I will grant you, based on passages like Ezekiel 18, God does not desire the death of anyone, but that they should live. And Paul, in the book of Acts, said God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. So I, I certainly am willing to grant, in a, there's a sense certainly in which God desires the salvation of all people. I don't think First Timothy 2, um, um, 1 through 4 necessarily teaches that. Um, same thing, go to, go to 2 Peter 3. The first rule, by the way, of biblical interpretation is context. The second rule of biblical interpretation, context. The third rule of biblical interpretation is, make a wild guess, context. Okay. Um, and so you just got to read through it. But even if, even if I'm wrong, that's fine. We'll deal with the second way of dealing with this in a moment. Um, chapter 3 of Second Peter, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And there it is. God wants all to reach repentance. Okay. Again, let's, let's again realize the word all um, is always relational to a group. Um, and certainly the group can be the group of everybody. It can be the group of the people in the room. So let's see if the context can shed some light on what the group is that all is referencing. Certainly not all trees, for instance, right? Not everything. We'd want to say all people, probably. So let's let's take this out. So look at verse eight. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the day with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. And the you there is a plural. It's you all. He's writing to Christians. Guys, if it seems like Jesus has taken a long time to return, if you guys are starting to grow weary in suffering and in persecution, consider the fact that, that God's timetable isn't the same as your timetable. And then he says, consider also that God is being patient towards you all, not wishing that any, and I would suggest there, of you all should perish, but that all of y'all should come to repentance. The reason why I say that is this. If God is delaying the return of Jesus in the hopes that everyone will get saved, he is failing. More to the point, far many more people have been born in that time delay since the time Peter wrote than have come to faith. You're actually increasing the number of the damned by waiting. If what you're saying is God is waiting, he's, Jesus hasn't come back yet. God's timetable is not your timetable. He's actually being patient. He's actually waiting because he wants everyone to be saved. A, that is failing. B, waiting, if that's the case, is counterproductive because you're actually growing the number of the damned far more than you're growing the number of the saved. This statement makes sense, however, if Paul has in mind the Christians, God's people. God is, is being patient towards you all, his people, because he wants all of you to be saved. I think that's probably the best reading of Second Peter, but 
So those are the two passages most often they cited, but I will fully grant that God invites all to salvation and that there's a very real sense in which God wants all to be saved. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that stones the prophets that sent her. How many times I'd gather you up like a mother hen gathered her chicks? You were not willing. And he weeps over Jerusalem. He desires to save them, and they, and they will not. So what do we do with that? I fully admit it's true. God desires the salvation of every person. I don't think these passages necessarily teach that, but I do think other passages do. Um, and first I want to point out that that is a problem for both the, the, the Calvinistic person like me, the predestinarian person, and the free will Arminian person. The reason why it's a problem for both of us is both of us have to admit, you say, hey, Jeremy, you just said God desires all people to be saved. Yep. Jeremy, are all people saved? Nope. That, we got to resolve that. But you go to the free will Arminian. God desires all people be saved. Jacob Arminius, yes. Yep. Are all people saved, Jacob Arminius? Nope. You see how both sides have got to deal with that? Because <laughs> you come to both sides and say, okay, could God, does God have the power and the ability to save everyone? I'll throw that to you. Could God save everyone? So clearly he hasn't, but it's within his power. So we've got to then conclude either that God is lying to us when he talks about desiring people to be saved, or that there is a hierarchy of God's desires. That may sound complicated, but it's something I think we all get. I want to be fit and in shape, and I want to eat a second helping of dinner. Both desires are within me. One of them is greater than the other. Anyone who's struggled with, with addiction, anyone who's struggled with their weight, anyone who's struggled with discipline knows what it's like to have conflicting desires within them. I want the ice cream sundae, and I want my shirt to fit. Fair enough? You with me? And so if I say to you, I really want that ice cream, and you say, well, then why aren't you eating it? If you wanted it, you'd eat it. Well, because there's something I want more. I want my pants to fit without cutting off my circulation. And you get that. So God, do you want everyone to be saved? Yes. Then why didn't you, in fact, save everybody? Well, because there's something I want more than that. And that's where both sides have to answer that question. Both sides have to say, okay, then what does God want more than the salvation of every last person? And both sides, both the predestinarian election side that I'm arguing and the, the free will Arminian side have an answer to that question. Now, the free will would say, what God wants more than everyone to be saved is he wants uncoerced, free, absolutely volunteer decisions for him. Right? That's, that's the answer. So what you're saying is God would be willing to watch the majority of mankind perish and go to hell rather than twist anyone's arm, rather than force anybody, rather than interfere with their freedom. So God's highest value is man's freedom. Understand that's that what that answer is saying. So God is more committed to the freedom of man than his desire for all to be saved. Okay, fair enough. That's, that's one view. Okay, my answer. Why does not God save everyone? And I'll turn to Romans 9, where Paul, I think, answers the question. Um, it's a tough answer, but 
I won't shrink away from what Paul doesn't shrink away from. So turn with me to Romans 9. The short version is because God's more concerned about his glory. Romans 9, 19. You will say to me that, and he's just finished laying out predestination and election. He's just, well, let's go back to 14, because he's going to quote Moses. Um, the Exodus 34 passage that we just read, 33 and 34. Let's go back to 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. There's Exodus 33. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills. He hardens whom he wills. And then Paul anticipates our objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And let's be honest, that is exactly the philosophical problem we have. This, how can people be justly punished for what God could have given them the grace to do, but he didn't? But who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has not the potter has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now look at verse 22. Here's, I think, the answer. What does God desire more than the salvation of everyone? What if God, desiring, there's that word, to show his wrath and to make known his power, has made known riches, made known the riches, oh no, sorry, endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for his glory. So I think what Paul's saying is what God wants more than the salvation of everyone is to demonstrate both his justice and his mercy. God desires, that's what he says in 22, what if God desiring to show or to demonstrate or put on display and make known his power, his justice, his holiness, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order also to make known, to display the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So it's a tough question. Um, one, both, of, both sides have to answer it. Both sides have to say there's something more that God wants than everyone being saved. One side says what God is committed to most of all, even though he'd love everyone to be saved, he values even more than the salvation of everybody, the autonomous free will of man. He won't interfere with it. He won't mess with it. He wants their free love. Now that has the benefit of making much of us. It makes us feel good. It has the deficit of lacking total biblical support. My answer's tough. I think it's biblical. Um, I think that's exactly what Paul's saying right here. And it's just tough. And God gets to say, hey, I'm God and you're not. And you don't get to question me. So the potter say to the clay say to the potter, "What have you done?" Okay, you know, but I I think the Bible addresses it. I think that's the answer. God, what's God more concerned about than the absolute salvation of everyone? The display of His glory, the full display of His glory. Zeb, then Greg, Zeb. I was just gonna say that, that has two 
and especially with Trump. Mm. Yeah, the, the fall was according to God's plan. Greg. The Armenians believe in... Well, let me, let me, let me sub-break this down. What you have in most of America is not even Armenians. What you have is, is semi-Pelagians. Um, forget, don't worry about the guild talk. The terms aren't important. Classic Armenianism fully believes people are born wholly sinful. They get that. They recognize original sin. Semi-Pelagians believe people are born good. So the Armenians actually do believe, they recognize those passages. We need grace. We need aid. What they believe, though, is in something called prevenient grace. I don't think prevenient grace is taught in the Bible, but the notion of prevenient grace is this, that God, this gets back to grace being obligated, God is obligated to give everyone enough grace to believe. So you can't believe without grace, but God will give everyone the grace to believe. Everyone will at least get that much grace. Everyone, so they, so an Arminian, a classic biblical Arminian would absolutely agree. Without God's grace, I ain't coming to faith. Unless God's spirit draws me, I'm not coming. However, God will draw everyone sufficient that they could believe. Semi-Pelagians just say you can do it apart from grace. You can just do it on your own. To say no. Yes. And then he won't mess with it. So he's going to give everybody just enough grace to believe, and then it's up to them to figure out what they're going to do. So that's that's the classic Armenian answer, which at least is far more biblically faithful than saying, there's a good dog and a bad dog inside of every one of us, and you can choose to believe if you want. And, you know, at least the Armenian recognizes the classic informed, biblically informed Armenian that says, no, no, we, we need grace. But God's given sufficient grace to each and every person um, to, to make that possible. So these are admittedly, what? Right. <laughs> well, we're terrified of God, of, of we, we are really, what we're trying to do is PR, be God's PR. We, we wrestle with, and I get this, we wrestle with our own understandings of love, our own understandings of, of what's fair, and then God shows up and he's like, hey, I'm God, and I don't do wrong to anybody. I, I don't give people what they don't deserve. However, I give lavish grace as I see fit to some. Um, let me give you an example in the one minute we have remaining of, of the situation. If I hired Zeb and Mary, and if I hired all these people right over here to, to, uh, to, to mow my backyard, they're going to do it as a team effort because I had a big acreage. Um, and I don't, but if I did. And I said to them, guys, you've got to be really careful. I put up a little fence, but there's a big pit, about 10 feet deep. It's got mud at the bottom in, in the back southern area of my backyard. Stay out of it, okay? I'm going to pay you ahead of time for the work. So now you're obligated to, to finish mowing my lawn. You guys are contracted. You're indebted to me. 
and I will require Mylon mode you know, by noon tomorrow. So you got 24 hours. Here's all the tools you need. Get to work. And then I leave. And I want you to imagine that every single one of them, the second I left, just ran and jumped in the pit. Mud, mud fight, you know what I mean? Whatever. And I come back, and it's almost noon, and I look over the edge of the pit, and I say, um, guys, uh, you need to have this lawn mowed here in, in, uh, by noon. And they say to me, you cannot expect us, it's totally unreasonable of you to expect us to mow your lawn since we're in this pit. We can't mow your lawn. We're not able to. We don't have the ability to mow your lawn. And you would be completely unjust if you expected and demanded that we mow your lawn. Well, the reason why that argument doesn't work is it's your fault you're in the pit. Right? So that's where the doctrine of original sin comes in. The doctrine of original sin is we really are guilty in Adam. We really come into this world responsible for the condition we're in. And if that clicks, if, if original sin clicks, then you get how God isn't obligated to go get a ladder so everyone can get out of the pit. We jumped in the pit, in Adam. We did. We made ourselves unable. We, we voluntarily made ourselves slaves to sin. And then, surprise, surprise, we're not free anymore. That, that's why when we started this, and if you go back to um, the sermon from Je- December, when we dealt with this, I spent so much time on the doctrine of original sin because historically that really is the issue. The issue that Luther and, and, and um, Erasmus were arguing about, about Pelagianism and about what condition does man come into this world. And the reason why Luther said this issue is more important than the Pope, discussing the Pope, more important than purgatory and indulgences combined. Because he sees how you understand man coming into this world and its implications are huge, huge. God does nobody any wrong. God is not obligated to get everyone out of the pit. The fact that he's chosen to offer it to all, and even to go that extra measure and actually make sure some get out, is just to his praise and glory. We stop marveling at grace, we expect grace, and then we complain when it's not given to everybody. And on that note, we've gone three minutes over. We can pick this up next week, same bat time, same bat channel. Have a glorious Lord's Day.